I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Hey friends, welcome to the broadcast. Great to have you here for Theology Unplugged. We are continuing our sessions on uh, difficult passages of the Bible. We've gone, what, 12 now? Uh, no, I think this is 15. Oh, okay. <laughs> 12 or 15. Three of them were just so difficult that they've blown out of the memory of your mind. Yeah, yeah, well, it's been a fun fun uh, trek through these difficult passages. I'm sure there's a lot more we cover, but... We've been hearing good feedback, too. It's been really exciting to hear about how the Lord is using the series. I, I think of one gentleman in particular that uh, let us know that he felt like he was really on a downward spiral and uh, that this series has really helped to, to breathe just a fresh uh, confidence in the Word of God into his life and a fresh confidence in God. And so uh, we rejoice in that and would love to continue hearing about uh, that because we're not just doing this for the fun of doing it, but that hopefully it would be of a blessing to you and help edify you that it would be to the glory of our God. But it is fun doing it, too. Yeah, it is fun. Sam, yeah. how you doing? I'm doing well. You make sure my coat doesn't. I was I was guarding that it's precariously perched on the edge of the table, and you know this is a Mexican coke. You know that? Uh, No, no. I I guess what's a Mexican coke? What's a Mexican coke, Tim? Uh, Mexican cokes are using pure cane sugar as their sweetener, as opposed to uh, any sort of um, of a false sweetener. I I would use toast corn syrup. Yes. I, on the other hand, have my Diet Coke with all sorts of uh, toxins. Yes. (laughs) It's an American one. Yes. We call that rat poison around here. (laughs) (laughs) All hate mail from Coca-Cola Corporation can be sent to Michael P. at ReclaimTheMind.org. Tim, right now as people are listening to this, we are in Tulsa. We are in Tulsa. We are excited to be a part of the On Guard Conference. Uh, A gentleman like William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, and... uh, uh, Paul Copan, Michael Lacona, friends of our ministry are going to be there and uh, hopefully just helping to deepen the church of Tulsa. And we are excited to be there. Uh, it's not too late to come on over. And we will be the exhibitor of the On Guard Conference. We'll have all of our wares set up, all of our uh, Bible study curriculum, all of our uh, all of our things will be there. Michael and I will be there hanging out. So we'd love to see you. Yeah, stop by the booth uh, if you can make it. Go to Search for On Guard Tulsa, I think, on Facebook, and that's one of the best ways to find out more about it, where it's at and everything. But if you're listening to this on Friday night, it is an all-day Saturday event as well. So you may get this early Friday, and we've got uh, late Friday night, then all-day Saturday. Sam, we're covering a passage. Well, what's the passage? Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through about 25. Okay. Um should let's, we read it? Yeah, let's let's read it and try to flesh out what the difficulty is because a lot of people probably have never even uh, paused at this and seen the difficulty. Do you want to read it, Tim, or do you want me to? Uh, I'll go for it. All right. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability 
to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'll leave it there. Dramatic I'll, reading I'll again. Say, say verse twenty-five. Wretched like, man that I am. Yeah, that's well. I mean, it's worth reading it. Hopefully, in the way that Paul is writing it, and uh, and I think that we even more. I think so many times we whitewash the Bible and just say, "Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" Well, you're presupposing the problem and the solution by reading it dramatically well, like that. No, no. I, Paul can write that very dramatically, and uh, and it's not presupposing. I, I think right. whenever right, right. whenever someone writes "wretched man that I am," they're probably not just you know they're heart rate is probably elevated. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> okay. I, I see him pulling his hair out. Yeah. Wretched man that I Oh, man. <laughs> Sam should have read it. All right. All right. <laughs> now, now before we, we uh, deal with the problem, now, I, I think... I think that whenever most people have come across this, this is... This, I would say, is probably in people's top five favorite passages of the Bible. Uh, and the reason for this is because a lot of people can identify with this. A lot of people see themselves in a wretched state. A lot of people, Christians, get into uh, uh, things that they're going through, problems that they're going through that they cannot that they cannot overcome, sins that they're going through that they cannot overcome. I read recently a quote from John Piper that uh, was about doubt, and uh, somebody was asking John Piper, "Do you ever doubt?" And he said, "Yeah, I do." And they said, "When do you doubt?" He said, "Well, it's never a doubt because of some type of problem of uh, suffering, like you would think in the world or." doubting the way that most people may doubt he says i doubt most of all because of the slowness of my sanctification mm. <laughs> uh mm. and, and i think this is sometimes when we cry out wretched man that i am yeah and so a lot of people sam whenever they're reading this before we introduce the problem they're automatically identifying with paul a lot of christians are automatically identifying with paul and presenting the problem um and the various options, I think many people will be inclined towards one way or another depending upon what they've been through in their life. Would you agree? Well, and the problem being, just to be very clear, the problem being Romans chapter 7, is Paul a believer when he is writing this, or is he writing this as an unbeliever? Is he putting himself in the mind of an unbeliever, or is he writing this as a believer? So if he's writing this as an unbeliever, guys like John Piper and all of us are deflated <laughs> because we're saying, oh, I feel this way sometimes as a believer, but this, these verses don't really apply to my state because, uh, because Paul was writing this as unbelievers because of Romans chapter 8. But if he's writing this as a believer then uh, there is a sense of uh, of that you feel like you are not a weirdo if you're still sinning as a believer, that, that you feel like even in Paul, who actually saw the risen Lord and God did miraculous things through this man, that he felt this way too. And if I feel this way once in a while, I have a brother in Paul. But So this is the big, big debate, though. Is he a believer in Romans chapter 7, or is he an unbeliever? Sam, is that does that cover it? Believer, unbeliever. Well, actually, there there are a number of options within each of those. 
um, probably the most traditional view, and I'm, I wrote down some names, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Owen, J.I. Packer, John Stott, all argue that Paul is describing the normal Christian life in the sense that we can expect to have this kind of a struggle throughout the duration of, of our earthly sojourn. And those are some decent people. Uh, pretty, there's some, <laughs> yeah. some, some, a few heavyweights in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, others say that it is, in a sense, a description of the normal Christian life, but not one uh, that we can't uh, move out of. In other words, they would say the goal is to exchange the experience of Romans 7 and the defeat that Paul describes there for the victory of Romans 8 in which we walk in the freedom of the Spirit. Others argue that um, this is the description of Paul's pre-conversion experience and struggle, that he's describing himself as an unregenerate Pharisee, um, a man under the law who is devoid of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, by the way, how there is no reference to the Holy Spirit throughout his description here. It seems as if he's describing not just a struggle with sin, but a constant defeat. I mean, listen, to, listen again to some of these statements. He said, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Um, he says, there is no good that dwells within me. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. Uh, the, the good that I want, I don't do, but I rather the evil. So, and then he says, you know, I am... I'm sold under sin. Does that sound like a Christian who, in fact, has the indwelling Holy Spirit, who actually can experience some measure of victory over uh, sinful fleshly impulses? So some say that this is uh, the unregenerate man. Others argue that we should not view Paul as describing himself autobiographically in any sense that he's talking about what some would call the representative Jew under the law of the Old Covenant. And he's trying to say this is what it means to live under the oppressive law without the, um, uh, the aid of the Holy Spirit to help us um, uh, move beyond the, the condemnation that we feel because of failure. Um, others argue that, in a sense, he's describing both the regenerate and the non-regenerate. In other words, he's describing an individual um, who simply um, struggles with the, with the demands of God without really identifying whether or not the person has been born again. Uh, Martin Lord-Jones actually has a really interesting theory. He argues that um, this most likely is describing a person who's non-regenerate, but he's being wooed by the Spirit. He's kind of in that preparatory stage prior to the new birth. So there are um, a number of variations. Um, now, some of the primary arguments given for people who would say, because the most natural reading, you want to you want to think that this is Paul before his uh, regeneration. As you're reading through it, there's nothing that says this is who I was before or I was. It's all in the present tense. Uh, it says that uh, I am sold into the uh, or I am of the flesh. Uh, I do not do what I want to do. It's not like, like he's saying, I did not do what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's interesting. I to, was not. It's interesting to point out. You made a very good point. In verses 7 through 13, he speaks in the past tense. And, there's, and then there's this abrupt shift to the present tense 
in verses 14 and following. And some have used that as an argument that in verses 7 through 13, he's describing his pre-conversion bondage to sin under the law. But with verse 14 and following, he's talking about his current experience as a born-again man. Well, and, and I think in, a, in addition to that, I think one of the things that we're seeing, though, too, uh, in this, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones takes us in a little bit different direction, but does a non-believer desire this holiness so badly as Paul seems to be? Uh, you know, most, uh, I think if you see Paul as a believer, you see him because the Spirit of God is in him, Ephesians 1.14, having believed, he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's role is to sanctify us, make us look more like our Savior, that he is feeling these intense desires because he is a believer and he wants to look more like his Savior. But here's the tension. You're exactly right. On the one hand, that's what makes this a problem passage, yeah. why we're addressing it. On the one hand, you read through this, and as you just said, there is this sense of, in my inner being, I love the law of God. I want to do what is right. Um, and so we say, well, surely a non-Christian would not have those impulses. But then you also read here what sounds like defeat. Yeah, I want to do that, but I see, find myself doing the very opposite, and I find that I'm sold under bondage to sin. So you have, well, could a non-Christian say the things that he does about his desire for the good? But on the other hand, could a Christian say the things that he does about his seeming defeat and the frustration and, as we said earlier, this sense of wretchedness? So there, there seems to be an inconsistency in both views. How could a how could a non-Christian person say the law is good, I consent to it in my inner being, I want to do what is right, um, I delight in the law of God, but how could a Christian say, but I see in my members another law waging war, making me captive to the law of sin? I mean, especially, I mean, think back, to, we all know that, that great text in Romans 6, where Paul says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Or he says, sin shall have no dominion over you. And here in chapter 7, if he's a believer, he says, I am of the flesh soul under sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the conflict. Is, is this um, pre-Christian struggles or is it post-Christian um, frustration it's a very difficult decision to make well one of the things that we know when we are reading paul is that paul uh, uses a lot of therefores and so also's and a lot of arguments right and a lot of run on sentences a lot yeah, he gets passionate right. forgets to end sentences and he just keeps going well first of all he starts off with an argument that he's trying to make in most cases especially within romans and there's a very clear pattern that he's moving towards but i think you're right tim Often, whenever you whenever you lose Paul, is whenever he gets excited. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where he he doesn't end things the right way, or or continue sentences, or use proper grammar. I think of uh, Romans chapter five, verse twelve, where he has a just mm-hmm. as without a so also. There, there's often these times, and it seems like we've moved into this period where Paul has not led us as well as he sometimes does, mm-hmm. and so we're pausing here and saying, "What just happened?" 
Is there a transition? Because how in the world could Paul be saying this? And I think really, guys, we're dealing with two questions rather than one. And uh, Sam has already alluded to this, but I just want to let our audience follow us as closely as possible. The first problem is this. Is Paul speaking of himself as a believer or an unbeliever? If he's speaking of himself as an unbeliever, problem number two is not a problem. But if he's speaking of himself as a believer, then we've got a second problem, which we're asking, does this present the normal Christian experience? Mm -hmm. Is it somehow the ideal, the normal, or the fleshly, possibly, Christian experience? The experience that we should not be in. Should we be in it? Should we not? Well, and I think what makes it interesting is that, I mean, most people will say that the Bible is clear that as believers we still sin. You know, confess your sins one to another. I mean, that comes from verses written to Christians, okay? So uh, most people will not say, most people say you continue to sin as a believer. But I think what makes it hard is how how hopeless Paul makes our sin to be. Mm. And not just that you're going to commit sin, but he is he's sold, he's a prisoner to sin and uh, no one can find the key. That type of sin. Yeah, uh, and again, I think a good question here, Michael, is your use of the word normal. Is this the normal Christian life? Well, let's define the term. Because if you mean by normal, it's the universal Christian life. And in the sense that everybody is going to experience this kind of struggle and this kind of defeat, at least occasionally. Mm-hmm. And I think we would all say, yes, it's normal in that sense, in the sense that it's, that it's true of all of us. Mm-hmm. But if you mean by normal, this is... A, a struggle and a defeat that is ongoing throughout the totality of my life to the degree that I can never break free of it. I can never get beyond this kind of sinful bondage. Then we want to stop and say, uh, mm. surely there's more hope than that, especially when you, when you move into Romans 8 and he talks about walking in the spirit rather than uh, walking in the flesh. So part of the question here is, you know, what do we mean by normal? Some have argued maybe Paul is describing the immature believer, uh, the believer struggling in a season of carnality, that this is an occasional kind of bondage, but something that we should not view as normative or permanent. And there is, in fact, hope that the Christian can, in fact, gain victory and uh, gain the upper hand, so to speak, on the, the struggle and the impulses of the flesh. And again, as I said earlier, some people would say this isn't Paul at all, huh. that Paul is simply using the, the, the autobiographical I, the personal pronoun I, as a literary device to speak of what it's like to live as an unregenerate person under the law of the old covenant, um, so for example, you know, look at we're looking here at verse twenty-two. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now we ask the question: Can a born again, or excuse me, can a uh, an unregenerate, unbelieving person say that? Well, somebody might say, well, you know, Romans two talks about the conscience that we have an awareness, an intuitive um, uh, awareness of the reality of God's law and of his moral demands upon us. But could a non-Christian say, I delight in God's law in my inner being? Well, look at Martin Luther before his experience. Mm -hmm. 
he he seemed to have a conscience, and he hated you know the law of God. He hated the righteousness of God. He didn't delight in it. No, no, not at all. Um, okay, so let me let me kind of give us some here of at least the first problem. Let's see where we're where we're moving forward. The unbeliever, if you if we're taking the stand that it's an unbeliever that Paul's talking about, we're saying it's hard to believe how someone can be so dominated by sin. Paul has just stated in chapter six that we are freed from sin, and then there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah, kind of the three primary. And just to give arguments. a little bit of statistics, uh, in chapter eight, the Holy Spirit is mentioned nineteen times in Romans chapter eight, and is mentioned zero in Romans chapter seven. Okay, um, the arguments that it's a believer present tense is used. That's the most obvious thing. That's the most obvious grammatical thing as you're as you're reading through it. It's present tense. It's I. It is the first person pronoun. I am. Yeah, and just as we would say, the normal, plain sense of the text seems to suggest Paul is describing his own struggles as a Christian man. Um, Now, again, there may be something deeper here that that we're overlooking, but when you read through the passage, uh, it, it sounds as if Paul's talking about his current experience as a believer. But like like you said, if that's really the case, uh, does that not leave us in some sense of despair? Like, wow, am, am I consigned to this kind of a battle and this sense of defeat for the rest of my Christian life? Because there's really no, um, there's no sense of victory here until you get to the very end where Paul cries out, well, thanks be to God who delivers me from this, the, this body of death. But Throughout the course of his description, it's not just as if he's describing occasional defeat, but utter and absolute loss. It's like I, the very thing that I know is right, I end up doing the very opposite. Uh, and that's that's rather despairing. Another argument people put forth about uh, this being Paul in his present state is that in his unregenerate state, any time he describes himself beforehand, how he felt about himself, especially in Galatians chapter 1, 13 and 14, he seemed to have a pretty good view of himself. You know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisee. I was keeping the law. I was doing well. The whole idea was if anybody had the opportunity to make it, it was me. And so... It doesn't seem characteristic of Paul to describe his previous thought pattern in such a way as this conflict. Yeah, in fact, you just re- referenced it. Uh, Philippians three six. He's just, he's obviously in Philippians three. He's talking about his um, his pre conversion experience. He's talking about his life as a Pharisee, and he says, "As to zeal, a persecutor of the church." Now listen to this phrase: "As to righteousness under the law, blameless." Mm-hmm. And so many have said, um, if you want to argue that Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, is describing Paul's pre-Christian experience, these two texts uh, are in conflict. Because that would mean that Paul is saying in Romans 7, I was experiencing this horrific struggle. I was condemned in my soul. I was I was constantly uh, laboring under a sense of guilt and failure. Um, my conscience was was um, deeply wounded, and yet in Philippians three he says, "When it came to righteousness under the law, I was blameless." Hmm. Now the way they get around this, um, those who argue that Paul is describing his pre-Christian experience in Romans seven, they have a way of getting around it. They say that Philippians three 
is describing how he was perceived externally or outwardly by others. Mm-hmm. In other words, Paul's saying, when you looked at me and observed my pharisaical lifestyle, you would say, that man is blameless. That man is observing the law of Moses fully and completely and faithfully. So is Paul in Philippians 3 talking about the outward perception of his behavior as a Pharisee, but Romans 7 is talking about his inward struggle um, that to which others obviously did not have access? Okay. Um that, now, one thing that I mentioned at the very beginning, and I think this is, for me, this is the tipping point. Uh, number one, I, I see this as, as the, it's hard for me to see this outside of Paul's present condition. Um, I'm not saying it's his ideal condition, but his present condition of him as a believer. Is that just because you want him to be a believer to no, justify I, your life? Exactly. I mean, I mean, honestly, in yeah. one sense, I am pulled in that direction because here's the deal. I've had that experience myself. I've, I've had this struggle myself, and I immediately identify with that. I could have written that uh, at, as a certain perspective. It doesn't necessarily make it true. I think at the end I could have said something like, thanks be to God that I've been delivered from this and there is hope. But at certain times in your life, in your Christian experience, you do feel this way. Now, you just key phrase, at certain times. So I think what you're suggesting is that if, in fact, Paul is describing what we would call, quote-unquote, the normal Christian experience. This is periodic. It's occasional. It's not, and I think it's important to, that people hear this, we're not suggesting, because I do believe Paul is a Christian here. That's my own personal conviction. Tim, real quick, you? You want to vote, Tim? Uh, I'm there as well, yes. Okay. And, and Michael? Yeah, there. Okay. Uh, we don't want to, uh, people to walk away from this thinking, Good grief. This is really depressing. You mean I'm never going to have victory over these sinful fleshly impulses? No, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I do think he's a believer, but he's talking about periodic occasions in which the things that he so desperately wants to do and delights to do, he does the opposite. So we don't want to leave people walking away depressed, giving up all hope, saying, well, if this is normative Christian living, I'm just going to quit trying. Well, let me piggyback on that, though, because I think, I think that this is, is exactly, though, why we need to keep trying. I mean, Paul himself wrote to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 1, uh, 4, or 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, or other verses say, keep uh, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine, uh, and and I think Romans seven has I think a potential for us to realize that that every single day though we desperately need a living Savior, and so it'd be if if Jesus just decided to go on vacation, the Spirit just decided to go on vacation and leave us to ourselves, we are in the sweet spot of Romans seven, and we have no hope. But I think you know what what keeps me making sure that I get up every day and gaze at my Savior and uh, you know sit at his, at his feet to, to to drink from His Word to 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 pray is the fear of what my life will be. And I'm not saying in a salvation sense, but just in a every day for the rest of our lives. We have the potential, I think, to commit heinous sins mm-hmm. every day. I mean, there were, I could ex- I could commit a, a stupid heinous sin on the day that I die, fifty years from now, Lord willing. And so every day, I don't. It's not like I wake up with a fear of. Uh, 
like an unhealthy fear, but I wake up with a fear of knowing my potential without Christ. And and so I instead of looking at Romans six as a beat down or Romans seven as a beat down, I think Romans seven gives me a proper sobering view that I cannot get away from my God. I've got to stay near to Him so that I have the hope of living out Romans eight. And and another thing that's I think um, it sounds like a strange word of encouragement, but I don't think the non regenerate man or woman would cry out, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? The fact that Paul is burdened by this defeat, that he's broken, that he's grieved, that he's in anguish over the fact that so often he does the opposite of that which he really wants to do, indicates that the Spirit of God is in him. I totally agree. Uh, If there were no indwelling spirit... Would there be the battle that he even describes? It's yeah, the, it's the yeah, presence of a yeah. conflict that I think ought to give us some measure of encouragement. Yeah. I want to yeah. I want to read something. I know we're close to the end here, but there's a quote from A. W. Pink on this passage that uh, I think is helpful. So I want you to listen to this. Uh, he says, "This moan, O wretched man that I am," expresses the normal experience of the Christian, and any Christian who does not so moan is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ or so ignorant of the teachings of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he doesn't know the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure of his own life. Nor is it only the backslidden Christian, now convicted, who will mourn in this way. The one who is truly in communion with Christ will also emit this groan and emit it daily and hourly. Yes, the closer he draws to Christ, the more he will discover the corruptions of his old nature and the more earnestly will he long to be delivered from it. So Pink is saying there's a sense in which the closer you become to Christ, the the, the deeper you love him, the more passionate you are about holiness, the more often you'll cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. Yeah, well, and look at the parable of, of the two people who are praying, too, that Jesus tells, and the, the righteous man who is basically saying, God, you're so blessed to have me, and I'm glad I'm not like him, and then the other guy who's just saying, I'm a wretched man, please have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus is saying, I'll take the second guy any day of the week. I think one of the things that uh, we need to introduce into this, too, is uh, I know that this is – I'm not trying to get into psychology here or anything like that, but there's also certain types of personalities that that are more – Self-reflective, yeah. Yeah. very the ten, the overly sensitive conscience, yeah, mm-hmm. and are continually like this because I see people and I deal with people all the time, and I think of David who is like this quite a bit, and some people who are more even, you know, and some people even who are taking certain types of drugs that even them out will be less inclined towards having this, and I just see this in people. I see more of a more of a less inclined to go down into these spiritual depressions because mm-hmm. this is a spiritual depression, is it not? Yeah, well, brought about by the Holy Spirit, and I think uh, the, the Romans eight one is so important for us to uh, mention to those who do have a, a somewhat uh, overly sensitive um, conscience, where Paul says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." So those who struggle in the way that Paul describes, and we all do in varying degrees at various times in life lest you fall into despair, 
uh, unless you think there's no hope, you think of the, the this glorious note of victory in chapter 8, verse 1. If you are in Christ Jesus by faith, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. The I want to, with our listeners, I want you to, this has been really helpful for me in my Christian life, is make a distinction in your mind between shame and sorrow. And know that in the what shame will do is shame will make you cower in a corner and never want to interact with people again. Uh, you will be shamed into hiding. And there's no place, like Romans 8, 1, there's no place for shame in the Christian life. But what sorrow will do, will it will lead you to change. So you can be sorrowful about something that happened and allow God to grow you, to forgive you, and to restore situations. And sorrow will make you fail forward, where shame makes you hide. And as a Christian, we can we can experience sorrow and grow from it, uh, but we need to reject shame as being uh, one of our enemy's attacks on us. All right, folks. I guess if the Holy Spirit's going to put us through the fire, there's going to be some revelation of some pretty nasty stuff. Uh, we don't get sanctified the moment we become saved, and. This may not be something that we have to say, this is what I'm stuck in the rest of my life, but we can experience these times. And so I hope this has been helpful for you, and uh, we'll deal with another problem passage next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.